So we've been reflecting over the last day or so on our identity and You know, finding our identity in Jesus. That all of us live like the drama of the story of salvation in our lives. That story that sort of goes from everything being good to distorted to redeemed. Eventually to end up being... in this eternity of love for the rest of eternity in heaven. And most of us live our lives somewhere, you know, kind of like between distortion and redemption. Like sometimes I feel like I'm, uh, like I have redemption days and some days I have like distortion days. Sometimes when I think like I'm totally in redemption, I end up back in distortion. You know, and that's like that's the drama of our lives. It's like what it is to be human. And you know what moves us into redeemed life. You know what moves us into that kind of solid, abiding identity as beloved sons and daughters of the Father. And if I was to use one word for what moves us into redeemed life, the word is mercy. You know, in mercy and the way that we experience mercy. And mercy is a word that I don't know that I've really understood until the year of mercy. Because it was always just kind of like something we say. Like, how many masses had I been to in my life where we start mass by recalling our Lord's mercy for us? But as a kid growing up, you know, you sort of stand up, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, I have sinned. And then the choir goes on, Lord have mercy, right? And I'm just like, oh, they're a good singer, they're not a good singer. And it's kind of how it goes. You know, that was back when I thought the offertory hymn was the halftime show. Um... And we kind of get used to that. And, and then, you know, I found myself, I was studying in Rome. I had gone through this kind of experience of our Lord's mercy in a really profound way, but didn't quite have the words to put on it. Came back right after the synod on the new evangelization and the retirement of Pope Benedict, the election of Pope Francis came back. Then we had this document on evangelization and then we had a year of mercy. And the logic of that is that Pope Francis is kind of focused us on the kerygma, kind of the first proclamation of Christ's saving love. And it's really everything, everything that he does, I guess some people get frustrated with him because he's not clear. I just kind of think everything he does, he's talking to somebody he doesn't really believe knows Jesus. 
So there's not really a point in being clear if they don't know Jesus. So he's just trying to help them know Jesus. You know, like, like he meets with George Clooney and people are like, George Clooney does all these things. Well, like how else are you going to convert George Clooney if you don't meet with him? It's not an affirmation of his sin. He's just entering into his life. And really everything he does is ordered to that. You know, when Amoris Laetitia came out and people are upset because it's unclear, this and that and the other thing, um, I was just kind of really happy that he made a whole synod to talk about families like my family that I grew up in. You know, like my experience of him isn't that he's always criticizing priests, it's that he's the first priest who understands my life. Because he talks about people who are on the fringe or people who are hurting or people whose lives are messy. And he encourages us to enter into the lives of people whose lives are messy. But the purpose of the year of mercy was that we would experience mercy because mercy leads to conversion. You know, John Paul II said in his second document he ever wrote, Divus and Misericordia, that the church proclaims conversion and conversion to God always it consists in discovering his mercy. A conversion consists in discovering his mercy. That is, in discovering this love, which is patient and kind, is only the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ can be. And so if we want conversion in our lives, if we want to live that life of redemption, we have to enter into this experience of his mercy. And that can happen in different ways. You know, we talked earlier about the Samaritan woman who she discovers our Lord's mercy in kind of the realization that he's always known who she was. And he very subtly reveals to her that he's called her despite the fact that she's had five husbands. He's just kind of calling her to admit that to him. And then she comes to this place of admitting that to him and then realizes, wait, he's told me everything I've done and he's also offering me living water. Can he be the Christ? And that, that discovery of mercy, it's more subtle. It comes in that realization that our Lord has always been with us in our stories and that's what we were talking about today. Now, there's another story of the, this experience of mercy that's not so subtle, which is the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Because she just got outed by a bunch of people. You know, it wasn't our Lord kind of subtly going, you know, so what do you do? And uh, why don't you go get your husband? And then she has to kind of own up to it. She's just like caught in the very act of committing adultery. And then thrown down in front of our Lord. So it's more of like this shock experience. But our Lord's attitude towards her is the same kind of an attitude. You 
And so the story goes that this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. And if we sort of intuit what her life was probably like, she was a prostitute. How do you become a prostitute? You become a prostitute when, you know, maybe she was raped when she was younger and she was no longer a virgin. She was no longer worthy of getting married. Maybe she was abandoned by her family and she ended up on the streets and the only thing she could do is like sell her body. Maybe her parents died and she was an orphan and she was exploited by people. However it was, she must have come to this conclusion about herself that she doesn't have value except for her bodily value. She's not worthy of real love. She's not worthy of real marriage. She just kind of has to go from man to man to man to man to man. Maybe make some money along the way. She probably hates what she does. She surely hates herself. And there are probably many mornings that she wakes up wishing that she had died in her sleep. You know, I've had the chance to meet women who used to be prostitutes when I'm at sexual exploitation conferences, and that's kind of how they describe their lives. Not all of them, but many. And then one day she's with a client, and all these men barge into the room. They grab her. They throw her out into the streets in front of everybody. This crowd of men gathers around her. And they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And we know this story. That our Lord bends down and he writes in the sand. Right? Like, what does he write in the sand? There's lots of theories about that. Now, some people say he was writing all of the people's sins. My own theory, I, I think he just was, like, doodling because he was trying to get her attention. So he's kind of, like, just bending down, like, hey, look at my finger. Right? Because if that happened to me and I was, like, half naked or naked, get thrown out in the street. There's all these men gathered around. They're all looking at me. They're all thinking about what I just got done doing. I'd be looking at the ground in my own shame. So he bends down to, like, catch her eye. He probably catches her eye for a minute. She looks like, what? And then makes eye contact with Jesus and then looks away like we would do when somebody is staring at us. And then he stands up and he says, whoever among you has no sin can cast the first stone. And then he bends back down. Hey, look at my finger. And this time he catches her eye. And she starts to notice how he looks at her. That everybody else looks at her body. But he's looking into her eyes. Like he's looking into her. And he's looking at her with love. And then I imagine the crowd noticing this and wondering to themselves, like, how does he look at her like that? I keep looking at her body and thinking about what she just got done doing. I want to kill her so that I stop being tempted by her. But he's looking into her. Oh, yeah, Jesus also said, Whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart.
and they start dropping their stones. Until it's just Jesus and the woman. Then he stands up and he asks this very important question. Woman, has no one condemned you? And she answers, no one, sir. And the no one, sir, includes herself. Right? The no one, sir, includes herself. Like somewhere in the midst of the look of love, she stopped thinking that I have no value except for my bodily value. I should be dead. All the things the crowd was thinking. And she started to see herself the way our Lord sees her. And then our Lord's able to say to her, go and sin no more. Sometimes when people comment on this, they'll say, but Jesus said, go and sin no more. Well, he did, but I imagine that she had had this complete, like, conversion restoration before he said, go and sin no more. Because then she's free. She's free from her own shame. She's free from self-condemnation. She's free from her own, like, self-hatred. And then she's free to go where she wills. And where she wills to go is right after Jesus. That's where she goes. Tradition says she shows up at the Pharisee's house and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. And then she is present at the crucifixion. And then she's the first to discover the empty tomb. She's transformed by love. She's transformed by mercy. And so there's this moment of, like, harsh discovery that happens. And yet our Lord still bends down in that moment, goes the extra, like, sort of goes the extra step in that moment to make sure that he places himself in her sight so that she doesn't miss the look of love. And then she starts living on the other side of the cross. She starts living that kind of redeemed life. She knows who she is. Because our Lord has revealed that to her in the way he looks at her. And she learned it through this act of mercy. You know, in a way, her story, it might even be more merciful than the Samaritan woman at the well because she was sort of like shocked into this forced encounter with our Lord's mercy. Like the circumstances of her life dictate that she really has no choice but to like encounter our Lord's mercy. And there are ways that our Lord does that in our own lives. You know, Friday I said something I usually don't say on retreats, so I probably should resolve it, that I was talking about how, so when I was in Rome, and um, I'm trying to think of how to tie this together. I'll just tell you, like, how our Lord did this for me. 
And there's a couple of different stories to it. So when I was in Rome and I was in my depression and I said I was watching like hours and hours and hours of TV all the time, um, like I was really like, I didn't even know if God existed a lot of days. I was saying mass every day and I, I remember going to a guy's room and I was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I've really asked Jesus what he wants from my life since I was in the seminary. Like I just became a priest and I've been on automatic pilot since then. Like, I don't think I've even asked him that anymore. And I'm not really sure he's that interested in me anymore. And of course, like the person I was talking to is a very good, like facade holiness kind of guy. And he was like, well, I always ask Jesus what he wants from my life. He's no longer a priest, by the way. Um, and so I was just feeling like the, my shame. And, uh, and the only thing I knew was our Lord's doing something with me. I have no idea what it is. I just know I can't go home until I figure this out or until he reveals it to me. And so it was like year three, like I made my prayer kind of for the year. Jesus, teach me how to love you the way I once knew how to love you. And, but I got to this like crisis point where I had to do something different with my life because I wasn't getting my paper done for my grad school to Sina. And I was like a year late already because in Rome, you just have to get your work done before you leave. So there's no due dates. You take your exams and I was smart enough to get, you know, max score on my exam, but I wasn't writing my paper. And, uh, and so I had to make a choice and my choice was either, um, shove all these emotions down that I don't understand and, uh, throw myself into my academic work and whether or not I appropriate it doesn't matter just as long as I can give the right answer. And I could be like a really good academic curmudgeonly priest who doesn't really like people. Or I could take a risk to have joy. Right, take a risk to have joy. But the risk to have joy for me was going to counseling, and that meant going to Bishop Bruskowitz and telling him, look, I haven't got my work done. I think I need to go to counseling. And that's scary for a priest. Right? Super scary. Because I know lots of priests, like fathers on sabbatical, and fathers, the hospital chaplain in a hole in the ground in western Nebraska. And, and I didn't want that to be my life. And I was afraid of getting help. Right? This is like part of the crisis that we have in our clergy right now, is that clergy are afraid of getting help early on. Because there's a stigma. But I decided that I didn't want to be the curmudgeonly priest, and so I asked Bishop Ruskowitz. He was very good with me, and he, we decided I was going to go to therapy in Alma, Michigan, and... Um, with these nuns, the Alma Mercy Sisters. And I would go in the summer um, when it ended. So it was about the end of April. I was, um, I was in chapel praying over Mary and John at the foot of the cross. And I got stuck there. So I was renewing my Marian consecration, and I got stuck in that meditation. And Jesus looks down at John, and he says, Behold your mother. And I got stuck, and like nothing happened. Right? Like some of you have said, Father, I tried to do that prayer thing you were talking about. Nothing happens. Well, like that's where I was. I was stuck. Nothing's happening. And uh, it was like two weeks of behold your mother. And then one day he says, behold your mother. And I had like these emotions, kind of these warm emotions, these butterfly emotions. Didn't really understand them. 
And the emotions were tied to a memory. And the memory was this lady who used to come by our house and she sold Mary Kay cosmetics when I was like between the age of 12 and 16. And I remember like hearing her voice and I was downstairs. When I heard her voice, I had all these emotions that I didn't understand. And so I went to my stepmom and I said, am I supposed to know that lady? And she looks at me like, no. Well, I feel like I'm supposed to know her. I don't know. Ask your father. Like, don't ask me that question. And so I never asked that question. And I just kind of shoved those emotions down as deep as I could go. And even when I was in situations that didn't make any sense, I didn't ask any questions. But when this came up in prayer, what I realized was, like, my mom had cancer when I was in utero. She was 24 had two boys and a baby, and she needed help. So the pastor of our parish asked the family to help us, and this family had four teenage daughters, and they would bring us food, and they would clean the house, and they would babysit. They would drive my mom to her appointments. And when my mom went into the hospital to die, I went to live with this family. And the Mary Kay lady was the mom of that family. So when I figured that out in my prayer, I was like, I really need to find this person. And I hope she's not dead because she's probably 70. So I went on Facebook, right, because everybody's on Facebook, and I look for her. And I think it was on my birthday, I found one of her daughters, sent, sent a message, and immediately I got a message back. How could we ever forget the little boy that God sent into our lives? And in about five emails, I learned more about my mother than I learned in 37 years of my life. I learned every day that she would call from the hospital. They put the phone to my ear so I could hear her voice. I never knew that happened. I learned that every day at 1 o'clock was my time with her. I would go in and lay down with her in her bed. Now, I learned all these things. And then when I went to counseling, it was like two hours away from where this lady and her husband lived now. So I got to go visit them, and I remember going to visit, and I was super nervous. I'd seen them, but I didn't have this, like, relationship context, and I'm knocking on the door. And Fred answers the door, and he's, like, he's, like, 70 years old. He's kind of, like, this frail old guy, and he was just, like, uh, hey, Sean, come on in. Like, no big deal, I'm there. Go sit down. We're telling stories. Mary comes in. She's talking. And then at a certain point, she says, hang on, I have something for you. And she leaves, and she comes back with this freezer bag. And in this freezer bag, she had, like, all the birthday cards from my second birthday party. Because I guess I had a birthday party. My mom died two weeks earlier. I, like, I knew all the names. She had a poem the hospital chaplain wrote about my parents when my mom was dying in the hospital. She had all the newspaper clippings from my high school career like swim, swim team, student government. Kilcally goes to West Point. And she had this red piece of construction paper that says in crayon, to Mary Mom, from Sean. Open it up, and it just says, I love you in big letters. And she carried that around for like 35 years. Seven times they moved their home. Just to give it to a 37-year-old priest who had no idea what it means to be loved unconditionally. And it, like, changed everything. It was the first experience I had of, like, somebody loves me for no reason. Somebody loves me without wanting something from me. 
Somebody loves me in a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable way. And it shifted the way that, you know, I've learned how to let myself be loved by God. You know, and others. Because I'm not very good at being loved by others, you know. Like, there's always, like, that one lady at church. And when I come out, she's just like, oh, Father, your story's so sad. I'll be your new mom. I'm like, get the hell away from me, lady. I don't even know you. But Mary Mom, she could come up to me and put her hands on my face and be like, we're in your life, whether you like it or not, and we're not going anywhere, and so you're just going to have to deal with us. And I'm just like, oh, that's so nice. I can entrust myself to her because there's proof that she wants the good for me without wanting anything in return. And then I learned that that's like, that's what our Lord's doing in my life. That he wants the good for me without really wanting anything in return. That I can abide in him. Because it's our Lord who did all of that stuff and he continues to do all of that stuff. I sort of imagine Jesus looking down at me as an infant and just being like, man, that kid's going to have problems. So I need to find a pack rat lady. It's going to keep all this stuff. But he did all of that. You know, and that was a moment of mercy. Right? A moment of mercy. And so I did like two months of counseling there in Alma. I learned all about family of origin wounds and attachments and things like that. And, and then there was this thing that came up in my life from when I was young. So I was maybe like 20, and I had a ton of shame about it. And I didn't know how to talk to my therapist about it. I didn't feel like I could talk to my non-therapist about it. And, uh, And it gave me a lot of anxiety. And so it happened to be my high school 20 year reunion, and I've got all this anxiety because of some event from my life that I felt like uh, I can't be forgiven. And so I go to my high school reunion because I get permission. And so I go to, to this little, I'm from like this little small town in Michigan. They have like these redneck bars where they have really good scotch and they don't know how to pour. And I drank too much. <clears throat> so yesterday I said, like, I got a DUI once. So I drank too much. And, um, and then everybody was gone. Like, I went to the bathroom, everybody went home. And I'm sitting there, me and my car, and a five-mile walk. And so I'm doing the calculations in my head. You know how, you like, sometimes we're stupid. And I'm like, uh, well, I could call somebody. Like, I've been t- I t- so, like, they told me, like, ten times when I was leaving the house that I should call them if I need them. But I still don't really know if I'm okay with needing people yet. And uh, if I sleep in my car, then I'll get a DUI for sleeping in my car, even if the engine's off. And so I'll try to drive. And if I can drive, I'll drive. And if I can't drive, I'll pull over. That was my plan. Really stupid. So I get in the car and like maybe a half mile down the road, I realize I can't drive. And so I start drifting off to the shoulder and like, please. 
And I ended up, like, getting arrested. Then I have to call, like, my friends to come pick up my car. I could have just called them to pick me up. And I went to jail. And uh, I woke up the next morning. And interestingly, so I wake up the next morning. And uh, it's probably one of the most humiliating mornings of my life. I had to call somebody for help. Um, as soon as I woke up, there was this one dude in there and I have a sibling who gets in a lot of trouble and, uh, he just looks at me and he's like, are you so-and-so's brother? (laughs) This is a sibling who despised being called Sean's sister for her whole life. And now I'm her brother in this jail cell. That's great. But I remember just sitting there and like crying out to our Lord from my heart, like just an unspoken movement towards him and hearing him say to me very clearly, Sean, if you want to punish yourself for your past, you can be in here. If you want me to love you, I'll love you. And like, boom. And I had to realize that like, there's a lot of things I punished myself for, from my past that just kept me in jail. And there was a really easy way out of that jail, which was just to let him love me. To surrender the dialogue where Jesus says he loves me, and I say, yeah, but you really shouldn't yet because I'm just not quite good enough yet. Give me like one more year to work on my stuff before you love me. Let me make sure my room's clean before you come in. If you want to punish yourself for your past, you can be in here. If you want me to love you, I'll love you. And that one moment, it like cut through all of that shame. And then as I alluded to last night, then I went to priest alcohol place and I learned all about 12 step groups and I learned all about brain science of addiction. And I started to integrate that with everything I was learning at the John Paul II Institute And it turned into a really compressed training program for, like, what our Lord has called me to do in my my apostolate, you know, here and around the country. But it it was a moment of mercy, right, that moved me in that conversion process. And that's how our Lord acts in our lives in order to continually help us to grow in our conversion process. It's in those moments of mercy when we discover that we're loved at a time in our life when we think that it's impossible that we could be loved. It's then that our hearts transformed. It's then that we find ourselves in a moment of surrendering, you know, and just giving up on trying to do things ourselves and letting our Lord take over our lives. And John Paul II says that when we come to know our Lord in that way, through that way of mercy, when we come to experience him in that way, We cannot help but to live a life that is continually being converted to him. 
that everything we experience becomes a moment of being continually converted to him. That's how our Lord worked in the life of St. Paul. It's how our Lord has worked in the lives of many saints. It's how he works in our lives as individuals. And if we're struggling with what's going on in the church in the United States or the things going on in our diocese right now, it's kind of like I use that analogy. Like, okay, so we just got like a DUI or we just got like, okay, this is a moment where like there's this kind of like forced experience of mercy. Like we have to just say like admit what happened, own it, and let our Lord bend down right in the sand so that we can see how he looks at us. And pray that everyone involved sees how our Lord looks at them. So that their hearts can be changed. It's what our Lord wants to do for his church in our time. But it starts with how he does that in our own hearts, in our own lives. And then our lives can become more fruitful. And so we've got about 20 minutes until we'll do night prayer and benediction. Maybe like 10 minutes until night prayer and benediction. So I'll just give you the next 10 minutes to just be with our Lord. And, you know, whatever place in your own life or your own history there might be, whatever's, wherever that resistance to being loved is, to just let yourself sit there and look at our Lord while he looks at you. And place yourself within his gaze. That's what we do when we go to adoration. We place ourselves in his gaze. And ask him for the grace that his look of love will also transform your hearts. That it'll speak the truth into whatever lies you carry. That it'll pierce whatever shame may be binding you. So that we all may live truly in freedom. in surrender and abiding in his presence.